Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Good morning. Good morning. Our pastor's gone this morning. I'm just delighted that he's gone. Because <laughs> I get to hear me preach. Uh, <laughs> um, this morning, I'm blessed to have, uh, we're blessed to have uh, with us visiting at Grace for the first time, uh, my discipler and uh, the male that I'm closest to on this planet, uh, Brother Roy Soup Campbell and his darling bride, Linda, and uh, welcome to Grace. So <clears throat> what, uh, what God is doing through me uh, I owe the vast amount of credit to that man uh, for, uh, for building into my life and discipling, and uh, thank God for that. Uh, speaking of China, uh, Soup just came back from China when? A month ago. And uh, God willing, uh, we'll pay, be taking another team back there um, in early October, and uh, my bubbling brown sugar and I We'll be going in uh, at the end of September uh, <laughs> to get locked in with a, a group of young college students there. Uh, I had the privilege of being with them last year, and uh, it is really exciting to see what God is doing in, uh, in China and the underground church. You know, there is a state-sanctioned church um, and that could loosely be called a church. Everything that is spoken... Uh, must be pre-screened by the government, and the government sends their uh, emissaries to, uh, to the services to make sure that you don't deviate from the script uh, and speak anything that's, that could be unfavorable to the Chinese government or to communism or anything like that. Uh, we, we don't work with those guys. We, we work with the, the underground church, the real church. And uh, statistics say, for whatever it's worth, that... 1,100 new congregations meet each week in China that did not meet the week before in the underground church. So it's just really exciting to see what God is doing there. You know, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you'll be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So simultaneously... Your sphere of influence is to be in those areas. Not just the greater Harrisburg area. Oh, absolutely that's yours. The light that shines brightest, that shines furthest, must necessarily shine brightest at home. Necessarily. If you've got a flashlight in your hand and it has to shine 100 feet, it has to be brightest in your hand. Okay? So the light that shines furthest must necessarily shine brightest at home, but simultaneously, your sphere of influence is to be Jerusalem, 
That's your local situation. Judea, your neighboring situation. Samaria, the people of your worst prejudice. And the uttermost parts of the world is self-explanatory. Simultaneously. You say, but, but that's impossible. Well, excuse me, Jesus did it. And he never traveled more than 90 miles from where he was born. Now, some wag that's thinking is going to say, yeah, but he was who? God. Well, let me set you free. He didn't do it as God. He didn't do it as God. Philippians chapter 2 said he laid aside his independent use of his divine rights and privileges and functioned as a man to show us how to do it. So <clears throat> that is to be our sphere of influence. And if we don't take Bibles, they'll send bombs. You can believe that. We're seeing that all over the world today. They will send bombs. All right. We're in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. So if you please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Verses 6 through 10. And as you're turning there, you know, the scripture is loaded with truths that are communicated with metaphors and parables. You know, a parable is like a window that you look through in order to see the truth and understand that truth. It's like a handle that you put in the hand of the listener that allows that listener to pick up that truth and carry it out with them. And Jesus was the master of this, truly the master of this. And it's fairly obvious that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picked up on this as our text today is communicated using farming metaphors or agricultural metaphors. So this truth is something every farmer knows something every farmer knows. And, uh, you know, for those of you that don't know, I'm a farm kid, uh, raised on a farm in uh, Lebanon, Kentucky. You can't even get there from here. Uh, <laughs> our entering and leaving sign was on the same pole. When I was raised there, it was about a uh, population of about 2,800 people. And I think that included all the dogs because you knew everybody's dog, too, all your neighbor's dogs. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we, we had milk cows. The only way I want to see them now is on the plate. Uh, <laughs> 128 cows twice a day, uh, and there's no holidays, and you know you, you got to be there. Some of you know what that's about, but I uh, have a full appreciation for the many uh, agricultural metaphors and parables in the Bible. And Jesus communicated that way frequently. And so does the Apostle Paul here. So let's just dive into the Word. Don't worry so much about where we're going. Just get under the sound of the Word. Verse 6 says, of Hebrews 6, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, I've got Hebrews under mine. Galatians 6, let him who is taught in the Word communicate. Communicate. Now I like this verse. Terry likes this verse. <laughs> Communicate to him that teaches in all good things. What that means is you're supposed to pay your teacher. 
as he gives you spiritual things out of the word, you're to reciprocate by giving him material things out of your possession. And the Bible says that over and over many times, many, many times. So let him who is taught in the word communicate to him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived, verse 7. Now pause just a moment. It says, do not, literally it says, do not allow your mind to be led astray. And be careful because there are subtleties everywhere distracting the minds of men is like a hook in the nose grabbing you and pulling and distracting you from what God would have you know. He said, don't, don't do that. Don't allow your mind to be led astray. God is not mocked. Now, the root form of the word mocked is the word for the human nose. The word for the human nose. And what that means is this. God will not allow any man to turn up his nose at him because too much is at stake. If God ever allowed or deferred to a single man in his anti-God wishes, and every man has them in his flesh, every man, whether he knows it or not, whether he's saved or not, every man has those types of wishes in his flesh, whether they come out or not. Everyone has them. And if God ever, ever actually deferred to a single man, then the entire moral structure of the universe would collapse in an instant. So it says God will not allow that. Now, most people in this nation this morning are turning up their nose at God. Most. You know, we call ourselves a Christian nation. I have a major league problem with that. This is not a Christian nation. It was founded on Christian principles. There was a time you couldn't hold the, the position of dog catcher in this country unless you professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've, we've strayed far from that, far from that. It's, it's tolerance now, you know. Uh, I'm too humble to say that what I believe has to be the right thing, so I'm too humble for that, so I need to defer to everyone else's belief system, and we need to have interfaith projects and those kinds of things. This is not a Christian nation. <laughs> it was founded on Christian principles. Every founding document, every document that undergirds this country, the fabric of that document is woven together with the Christian gospel. Every last one. There's no such thing as separation between church and state. And that's misinterpreted by us all. The American Uncivil Liberties Union has done a job on that. <laughs> but most people in this country, in this nation, are turning up their nose at God. Some do it glibly to appearance. They do it innocently. Some do it indifferently. They just... It doesn't fit into their daytime or they just don't have time for God. Some do it arrogantly and others do it defiantly. Boy, they, they shake a fist as they turn up their nose at God. Well, you may be sure of this. This is a law. God will not allow any man to turn up his nose at him because too much is at stake. Too much is at stake. Continue the reading, verse 7. 
Because whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, in verse 8, he follows that statement with a more specific statement about the two areas where this is done. You see, back in chapter 5 of Galatians, your life is pictured as a, a giant battleground. And there are two opposing forces facing each other, warring it out on the battleground of your life, if you're saved, all the time. One is called the flesh, and the other is called the spirit. And they're facing each other in locked-in combat, if you're saved, inside of you all the time. So you're flattered. Your life is a, a giant battleground. But then when you come to chapter 6, the figure changes, and your life becomes the picture of a, a large estate, a large luxury estate. And there are two fields there where you as a farmer may sow seed. You sow in one field, you get one crop. You sow in another field, you get a different crop. But stand warned, the crop is going to come up just as sure as you sow. Just as sure as you sow. Now, one of those fields is called the flesh and the other is called the spirit. And wherever you sow the seed, that crop is coming up in whichever field you sow. Now, be careful with that word flesh. When an American today sees the word flesh, he automatically thinks of sexuality, typically. But the word flesh has nothing to do necessarily with sexuality at all. Satan would love for you to think that so that you just keep yourself sexually pure and, and you're, you're okay, you're home free. But the word flesh has nothing necessarily to do with sexuality at all. The word flesh is the word for your self-centered life. Self-centered life. You want a graphic picture of it, spell out the word flesh on the page Strike off the H and turn it around. Self. Self. That is what the word flesh is all about. It's about your self-centered life. I'll do what I want to do, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I am the captain of my ship, the master of my destiny. I, I, I. In fact, that's what sin is. S-I-N. Selfishness. Your self-centered life. So that is the word for the word flesh. Now verse 8b said, but he that sows to the spirit, now that's the other place where you can sow all your thinking and acting and doing, shall out of that field reap life everlasting. Now that would require some explanation, wouldn't it? He that sows to the spirit shall out of that field where he sows Reap eternal life or life everlasting. See, it sounds on the surface there as if Paul is teaching salvation by works. You need to go back. That's not it at all. You need to go back. There's only one definitive statement in the Bible of everlasting life, eternal life. And it's found in John chapter 17, verse 3. Verses 3 and 4. Everlasting life from the lips of Jesus himself. Everlasting life is in what we should call the Lord's Prayer. What we should call the Lord's Prayer. 
Now, I know if I ask us now to recite the Lord's Prayer, how would we do that? Our Father who art in heaven, isn't that how we'd start that? Ain't wrong, but thanks for playing. That cannot be the Lord's Prayer. It's impossible. Verse 4 says, forgive us our sins, and Jesus had none. It is the model prayer, the pattern prayer. He was teaching his disciples to pray. He could not validly pray that prayer for himself. See what tradition does to us? Just gets in God's way at every turn. (laughs) Now, the Lord's Prayer is in John chapter 17, just before the chain of redemptive events where he went into the garden and was in prayer with the Father in that entire chapter. It's a prayer. In verses 1 through 6, he prays for himself. 1 through 5 or 1 through 6, he prays for himself. In 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate 12 disciples. And in verses 20 and following, he prays for all future generations of disciples. And that's where you and I get in on the prayer, just as if he called our very name. That's the Lord's Prayer. So what was on his heart before he went to the cross? Disciples. Not converts, disciples. Converts grow old in the Lord. Disciples grow up in the Lord and become reproducers. Babies don't reproduce. (coughs) But in John chapter 17, Jesus gives us the only definitive statement of eternal life in the Bible. It says, now this is eternal life or life eternal, that they or that men might know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, the word know is a present tense continuing verb, continuous verb. So he's not talking about my being saved there. He's talking about my ongoing relationship with God. He's talking about a quality of life inside of me that has God at the heart of it. That's what eternal life is. In fact, that word know in the Septuagint translation, the Greek version of the Old Testament, is exactly the same word. It is the present tense of the same word that's used in Genesis 4, 1, where it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and brought forth a son. So that word is the word for intimate interaction or intimacy between a husband and a wife. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is intimate interaction between my inner spirit and God. That's what eternal life is. Let me turn it around negatively. If you do not have intimate interaction between your inner spirit and God, you do not have eternal life because Jesus says that's what it is. Intimate interaction, in fact, it's better than that. That word no means that it's a, a romance. A romance between two deep lovers. One is God, one is you, and he's love, expressing his love to you in grace and mercy, and you yield to that love in reciprocation with obedience and worship and praise. Now, that's what everlasting life is. It's that quality of life that you engage in every day that has God at the heart of it. So back to Galatians, 
chapter 6, Paul's not talking about my being saved there. He's talking about engaging in that quality of life every day that has God at the heart of it inside of me. Everlasting life. Life everlasting. And don't be weary in well-doing or doing well, but in due season we shall reap if we faint not, or if we don't give up. Verse 10, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith, of the faith. Jude 3 puts it this way, the once for all delivered to the saints, faith, that's it. There is no interfaith. <laughs> what is that? You know, you hear people say, well, well, what faith is he? There's only one. The ones for all delivered to the saints' faith. That's it. Period, paragraph, close. That's it. No more. Now, <clears throat> the book of Galatians is really, really heavy on its presentation of law, God's law, L-A-W. Very heavy on its presentation of law. Uh, and how it deals with that. God presides over a universe of law. And because it's a universe of law, it necessarily, except for any breach by an enemy that God allows, it necessarily is a universe of order. Order. You see, nobody ever breaks God's law. You, you cannot break God's law. Nobody ever does. You illustrate the law. I mean, you climb up on a 30-story building and jump out the window and see if you break the law of gravity. <laughs> well, it breaks you. <laughs> you cannot break God's law. A law is a law, and it cannot be broken. You illustrate the law, and the flip side of the coin is destruction. So nobody ever breaks God's law. You demonstrate the law. Now look at verse 7. And what we've always called verse 7 is the law of the harvest. The law, and the, har the law of the harvest. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. The law of the harvest. And it is. It is. It is a law. But that's an inadequate title for that passage. You know, there should be an S at the end of that. Because there's not just one law pictured there, there's several laws and a lineup of laws that are pictured in this passage. In verses 7 and 8, it's not just one, but several. So I want to talk to you this morning about something every farmer knows. I'll give you the, the list of laws and, and we'll come back and, and amplify those just a bit and we'll be finished. The first law I see pictured here is the law of labor. The law of labor. The second law I see pictured here is the law of likeness. Likeness. There's a like over against a like. The third law is the law of largeness. Remember, these are something every farmer knows. The law of largeness. The fourth law is the law of lateness. Lateness. And the fifth law is is the law of love. Now, 
The first four of these are outright stated in the passage, and the last one hovers over the environment of the passage, and it comes leaping out when you see it. Now look at verse 7, and tell me how we almost invariably always look at that law. Do we look at it negatively or positively? Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Do we look at that negatively or positively? Yeah, there's no question. We always look at that pretty much, invariably, negatively. And, you know, there's no question about that. We have turned that verse into a threat that produces fear instead of a promise that produces faith. Now, I want to look at the positive side this morning. We'll admit the threat side. I mean, that's obvious that God is not mocked. But after all, that is one incredible promise. Why don't we hear the side that says, He that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit, out of that field where he sows, reap his crop. Same kind that he sows. I mean, that, that is an incredible promise. So we want to look at the, the positive side of that. Let's look first at the law of labor. The law of labor. Now, keep your eye on the text. Once in verse 7, he talks about a man sowing. Twice in verse 8, he talks about a man sowing. But in verse 8, there's two different fields in which they sow. Two different people in two different fields. So this is the general rule, the law of the harvest. Now the verb the Holy Spirit uses here is the first verb Jesus ever used for gospel enterprise, the word sow. The word sow. In Mark 4, Jesus gave us what we call the parable of the sower. And I would submit that that's an improper term for that. That's not an analysis of the sower. It's an analysis of the soils. It's not an analysis of the sower at all. It's an evaluation of the soils. And those soils represent the way people listen to God. So you better hear carefully. Jesus talked about hearing more than anything he ever talked about. Six times more than he talked about heaven and hell put together. He talked about hearing. And he spoke to his disciples the warningly, the ones that heard him all the time. He said, hearing, you will not hear. Well, that's a bombshell. <laughs> so it's possible for you to be in church every Sunday, listening carefully, and never hear. See, we think that because we're there when it's spoken and we have an audible capacity and the sound waves are floating around, that we hear it. Jesus says we didn't get it at all. He said, having ears, be careful that you hear, be careful what you hear, and be careful how you hear. So hearing is pretty, pretty important inside the body of Christ. Why? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So hearing is really critical. I dare you to go to Penn State and check on the number of courses that they offer on speaking as opposed to the number of courses they offer on hearing. <laughs> Nobody ever teaches us to hear. <laughs> We just assume. 
Now, in that parable of the soils, there are four different kinds of soil there. And the last one is divided into three kinds. So you have six, at least six different levels at which people listen to divine truth. Pictured there. You see, there are many radically different ways of how we listen to things. I can prove that to you in an instant. Now listen carefully. If you knew, and you knew that you knew, and there was no doubt in your mind that you were going to be dead in the next five minutes, and you either had to stay in here and listen to me, or you chose to, would you listen for the next five minutes the way you're going to listen the next five minutes? <laughs> no, not at all. You would listen with an incredibly intensified capability and focus. So I've already proved there are at least two radically different ways in which people listen to things. Well, in that parable of the soils, Jesus says a certain sower went out with a seed bag at his belt, took out a handful of seeds, and indiscriminately just flung them over at least four different kinds of soils. And the last category is grouped into three, broken into three. So at least six different levels are pictured there of how people listen to divine truth. But the key to that parable, the transcript of Christ's entire earthly history, is in the phrase, a sower went forth to sow. And when he left the earth, he gave this into our hands. He said, I want you to love me, and then I want you to just take the, the seeds and just fling them across every kind of soil, indiscriminately. Don't, weather, don't worry whether that soil looks hard or not. Don't worry whether that soil looks shallow or not. Test every soil by simply flinging the seeds everywhere. The judgment is not yours. That belongs to God. It's our job to simply fling the seeds. I am in the ministry today because an anonymous man on a street corner in Chicago, Illinois, bumped shoulders with another man walking down the street. He was passing out tracks. When they bumped shoulders abruptly, he turned and just stuck out a track. Joe Biney took that track and stuck it in his pocket, went on home. His wife had prepared supper. He went upstairs to change, to take a shower and to change. And when he did, that track slipped out of his pocket. He took it out and read it, and God broke his heart, and he got down on his knees right there and surrendered his heart to the Lord. He went downstairs and couldn't even tell his wife about it. What had happened to him? What he didn't know, when he sat down to eat, she went upstairs afterward to change into leisure clothes. He had laid that piece of paper on the end table at the bed, and she picked it up and got saved too. <laughs> I want to know where the seed sowers are. How much talent does it take to do that? Those are seeds. This morning, I turned to Linda Campbell because I know she always has seeds in her pocket. Somewhere she has seeds on her person. I've witnessed it for 20-something years. <laughs> she always has. And I said, do you have any tracks on you? She said, I only have Muslim tracks. 
I said, that's just fine. <laughs> Those are seeds. Where are the seed sowers? This, this is an interesting. There cannot be a harvest without seed sowing. Once the seeds are sown, there will be, will be a harvest. I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 4 for just a minute. Mark chapter 4. As far as I know, I've only heard one other person preach on this text. And that was my other discipler, Herb Hodges. But Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. Listen to the words of Jesus. So the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the ground. Now the word cast is an aorist tense verb, means he did it one time, made one cast. Cast seed upon the ground. Now there's a simple procedure. He cast it one time. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, whatever the schedule called for. So what did he apparently do about that seed? He cast it one time and what? Forgot it. Forgot it. Whatever the, scholar, the, the schedule called for, he went about his business and basically just forgot it. So there's a simple procedure. And the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself, and that's major emphasis in the text, he himself, the very one who flung the seed, doesn't even know that it's growing. So there's a secret providence that takes over once he made that cast. Next, there's a sure promise. Listen carefully. This is the most important thing I'll say this morning. The earth produces crops by itself. By itself. That's a sure promise. You know what the word, the, the phrase by itself is? It's the Greek word automate. Do you hear the English word in that? Automatic. The earth produces fruit automatically. Wow. Do you realize what God is promising here? He's promising that if we'll just sow, the harvest is automatic. That's the word of God. Automatic. Then where are the seed sowers? So oh, they're going to church. <laughs> you say, that sounds unkind. I don't care what you think about that. Get out and start sowing seeds. The harvest is automatic. Don't make me the issue. That's the word of God. Automatic. And instead, we're busy trying to get programmatic in most of our institutions. <laughs> it's not done by programs. It's done by persons. It's not done by in institutions. It's done by individuals. You see, we should come here together on Sunday morning to celebrate the harvest that God is giving through our lives all the week and come to get more seeds so that we can go back out there and sow again the next week. And that should be a constant cycle in our lives. We should be celebrating what God is doing through our lives, in the lives of lost folks, in the lives of hurting people, 
and they're everywhere all around you, all around me. We should be coming in here to celebrate that, getting more seeds, more truth. We have a great feeder. God has blessed us with that. We have several of them, (laughs) several of them, praise the Lord, and grab that seed and head out again the next week to continue sowing and come back again and celebrate. That's what we ought to be doing on a weekly basis. That's the cycle. And he is guaranteed that the harvest is automatic. God has promised us that. He's promised that. He's a God who cannot lie. I wish I had time to tell you the dozens and dozens of stories I know about how God used little pieces of paper or a word here or a word there to arrest someone for himself. You don't even have to pray over the seed. <laughs> Do you see him say that anywhere? The harvest is automatic. I wonder what that little guy on that street corner in Chicago is going to think when he stands at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ that you can find in 2 Corinthians 5, and there's this whole big throng of people from every nation on earth lined up behind him as part of his crown, and he don't even know them. All he remembers doing, he probably don't even remember handing out a piece of paper. Because the first man in that chain got saved, that got saved through that effort where somebody sowed into his life was Herb Hodges. He's been around the globe literally more than 100 trips around the world, has a local ministry, a national ministry, and an international ministry. Soup Campbell has the same. The Lord has blessed me with the same. So everybody we influence for Christ is going to stand up behind that little man and nobody knows his name. <laughs> All he did was hand out a piece of paper. Where are the seed sowers? You see, the key common denominator of all the symbols Jesus used for gospel advance is the common denominator of penetration. Penetration. You see... Bread is no good unless it penetrates the eater. Water is no good unless it penetrates the drinker. Light is no good unless it penetrates the darkness. Salt is no good unless it penetrates the salad or the potatoes. They asked, like they asked the little boy, they said, what's salt in grade school? He said, that's the stuff that ruins the potatoes when you leave it out. <laughs> An ambassador's no good unless he's penetrating into a, far, a foreign country. A pilgrim is no good unless he's penetrating into his journey. Every symbol Jesus used is bound together by every other symbol by getting out. Not coming in. Getting out. You ladies, I want to encourage you. Becky Pippert has a, a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. Wonderful, wonderful book. Wonderful book. And that's what it's about, getting the salt out of the salt shaker. It's no good in there. (laughs) So everywhere you go, you just fling seeds and trust God to honor his promise. He's a God that cannot lie. Secondly, and we'll move a little faster, 
The second law I see here, called the law of likeness. Every farmer knows this, that you reap what you sow. If you sow wheat, don't expect corn. You reap exactly what you sow. In fact, there's a locked-in likeness to reproduction. Brother Roger, Genesis 1.11 puts a lock on this. <laughs> says everything will produce unit by unit only after his kind. There's never been a crossing over from one unit to the next. Science has never seen anything like that. Never happened. Jay Gould, who's dead now, but was the leading atheistic spokesman for the World Evolutionary Camp. Had a debate with Dwayne Gish of ICR a few years back, and if it had been a fight, they'd have stopped it. Gish just buried him. I mean, just buried him. Flat out buried him out at Stanford University. When it was over, they interviewed Jay Gould, Harvard paleontologist, <laughs> you know, supernova egghead, man. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the guys at ICR are too, <laughs> but they're, they're the good guys. Uh, they interviewed, interviewed Gould and said, uh, you know, it didn't go well for evolution today. He said, no. He said, uh, we've been searching for the missing link for 150 years, and we haven't found it for one simple reason to prove evolution. It's not there. Now, this is the leading spoke, uh, spokesman for the World Evolutionary Camp before he died. He said, it's not there. He said, we're going to have to give up and come up with something else altogether. <laughs> he said, I would go in the other direction. However... The alternative is unthinkable. It would require the existence of an almighty God. <laughs> this is the leading atheist in the world admitting that there has to be a God or they got to come up with something else. When you sow one thing, you get that thing. It's a locked-in likeness. I copied this out of a, a cool little thing. I don't even remember where I got it. It says, how would you, it was entitled, How Would You Like to Know the Future? That's a pretty enticing subject, a lot of folks. Miss Cleo made millions off of it, and she was just a, a girl from the ghetto of L.A. <laughs> when they uncovered her, that's who she really was. <laughs> she was a great actor, had a great accent. Uh, <laughs> says, how would you like to know your future? Would you like to sit down at a table and write out your future? You can. This world is one of law and order. If you know the law, you can write out your future. Here's the law. If you plant radishes, you get radishes. Don't expect pansies. If you plant wheat, you know you'll reap wheat. This law of nature cannot be broken. So if you want to know your future, just look at your past and see what you've been sowing. Because the crop is going to come up exactly according to what you sow, the law of likeness. You know, a few years back, they, when they discovered the, the tomb of King Tut, uh, which was the, the boy king, that it was just 
massive wealth buried with him. I guess they thought he was going to need it in the next life. Uh, They also buried some seeds with him, an urn of seeds. And the scientists took those seeds and sowed them. Now, thousands of years old. You know, a crop came up. (laughs) A crop came up. You're going to reap exactly what you sow. Third, the third law I see here is the law of largeness. The law of largeness. Any farmer knows this. The volume of the crop far exceeds the volume of the seeds that are sown. So not only do you reap exactly what you sow, but you reap in volume exponentially more than you sow. I could hold enough seeds in my hand standing here to plant a crop that would fill this room many times over. So not only do you reap exactly what you sow, but you reap in volume far more than you sow. Far more than you sow. Anybody, you've heard this one, anybody can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. You know, then where are the seed sowers? <laughs> Jesus said the harvest is automatic. You know, I was out in uh, Northern California this week um, working, doing my tent making thing. And uh, for those of you that don't know, I'm not really a physical tent maker, but that's an expression. And, uh, <laughs> but it'd be perfectly fine if I were. Um, and had the chance to go through a part of the Sequoia National Forest. If you've never been there, you owe it to yourself to see that. It is incredible. It is just incredible. These giant trees, I mean giant trees, 240 feet tall, some of them. I mean, the clouds just engulf the tops of those things. And the guy who was with me said something that really really got my attention, and I won't forget it. He said, can you believe that something like that came from an acorn? We drove across one of them. It was two lanes across it. (laughs) There are places where you can just drive right through the trunk of one of them. These things are massive. That came from an acorn. I mean, giant trees. 240 feet tall, some of them. Interesting enough, their root system only goes down 12 foot deep. You say, well, how on earth do they stand? You'll never see one out by itself. It spreads out, and their root systems intertwine. They hold one another up. What a picture of what Christians ought to be. But instead, when a brother falls... We're kind of glad sometimes. We, we, we rejoice in iniquity, brother, a lot of times. We're kind of glad when somebody else does because it gives us something to compare ourselves to and to make ourselves think we're, self, we're righteous. That's a whole nother sermon. Um, <laughs> you know, I was in Chicago a few years back, and I think, it's, I think they've torn it down now, John, the... the uh, Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And there was, in that place, a large checkerboard. 
marked off just like a checkerboard. Uh, it's, on, it's a huge thing, uh, eight and eight, 64 squares. And in the first square, they had glued one wheat seed. In the second one, two. In the third one, four. In the fourth one, 16. Then 256. Then 65,536. And they went on through the first eight squares, multiplying through the first eight squares. And, and, and then the rest of the board was blank. And at the bottom, there was a little brass plaque that explained what you were looking at. And they said, we had to discontinue uh, gluing the wheat seeds uh, at the eighth square because the volume of the seeds became too great for the square that it would be contained in. But if we had continued that process through all 64 squares, by the time we got to the 64th square, there would be enough wheat seeds to cover the entire subcontinent of India 50 feet deep. Dear friends, where are the seed sowers? Jesus said the harvest is automatic. Automatic. All right. The fourth law. I call the law of lateness. The law of lateness. Every farmer knows this. You don't reap the afternoon or the morning that you sow. It's always far later than that. Listen to verse 9 of our text, Galatians 6. It says, Don't be weary in well-doing, but in due season we shall reap if we faint not or if we don't give up. In due season. Now, think of what advantage people take of this both positively and negatively. On the positive side... A Christian can't see the immediate crop, so he doesn't go sow. He, he lives by a bird in the hand, is worth two in the bush, principle or philosophy. And, and so he can't be patient enough to wait for God to give the harvest, so he doesn't sow. On the negative side, think of how many people are thumbing their nose at God or turning up their nose at God because there's no immediate reprisal for their sin against him. I don't know any more relevant verse in the Bible for what we're seeing today in our society than Ecclesiastes 8.11. Pastor preached on this. You say he did? <laughs> well, yes, go back and look at your notes. <laughs> That's why he gives them to you. It says, because the sentence against an evil work, and I quote King James because that's what I learned, but you read it on the screen there. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed immediately, speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil while they live. In other words, because God doesn't lower the axe the second they sin, they say, aha, got about with that. Take that. <laughs> and we don't say that, but by our actions. It's like Ernest Hemingway, the author. You, you know of him. There was an article many years back in Eternity Magazine about Ernest Hemingway uh, and his position on sin, that the Judeo-Christian uh, position on sin was just a myth, that you can sin all you want to and get away with it, no big deal at all. And 10 years to the day that that article was published, he took a, a bullet and blew his brains out. Why? 
My dear friend Soup preaches a sermon called Sin Will Slow Walk You Down. <laughs> See, God's wheels grind slow, but they grind small. Grind really small. It's like the old infidel in London that stood in a square and with his pocket watch in his hand and said, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead if he exists. Somebody told Joseph Parker, that great godly giant of the past, that, and he said, does a stupid man think that he could exhaust the infinite patience of God in five minutes? (laughs) 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 The law of lateness. You're going to reap what you sow. It's going to be later than what you sow. Because there's no immediate reprisal, we take that occasion to sin against God. And because there's no immediate harvest, we won't patiently wait and go sow. Hebrews 5, 7 says, The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. Would that Christians would be so wise. Fifthly, the fifth law that hovers over the environment of this passage comes leaping out when you see it. I call the law of love. Look at verse 6. Let him who is taught in the word communicate to him that teaches in all good things. Now, that's one way you can love others. You learn the truth of God, and you teach it to anybody that will listen. Anybody that will listen. You say, Jim, I don't have the gift of teaching. Well, nothing says you have to. God didn't give us all that. Are you also going to say, I don't have the gift of giving. I have the gift of receiving, brother, so lay it on me. (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Does that mean you're not to give? No, no. You still have to exercise in those areas as a Christian. You don't have to have the gift of teaching. It doesn't require the gift of teaching for you to sit down across from a less mature Christian or a newborn baby Christian that you've just led to Christ and start to pour everything you know about the Christian life into his life so that he will also sow. You don't have to be a teacher to do that. Look at verse 9 and think of the law of love. Don't be weary in doing well. For in due season, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. See, love is something you do. It's not a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling that you never felt before. It's something you do. Love is an action. Love can only be described in action. For God so loved the world that he did something about it. In John 21, when Jesus came to Peter to restore him, and he said, do you love me? And Peter said, I like you. You know, we all right. <laughs> he said, then do something about it. Do something about it. Do you love him? Do you honestly think that your presence here is concrete evidence that you love him? I got news for you. It's not. It's not, not necessarily at all. 
There are lost people that go to church every single Sunday because it's expected of them. Or so they can look good when they compare themselves to someone else. If you love him, do something about it. You see, we forget so easily that we're all reaping incredible dividends of crop harvest today because someone in our past lovingly went and sowed. Christianity is an import to this country. Hello? We forget that. There's no American flag draped over the throne of God. (laughs) Christianity is an import to this country. And you were not biologically born a Christian. There are none of those. It's an import. This is why that in Jesus' marching orders to his church, the Great Commission, that he commanded us to make disciples of all nations. Not converts. Well, that's a start, that's a beginning, but it's not even a good one. Not converts, but disciples. Why would he say that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it better than I could, so I'll quote him. The great German Christian, he said this, The truly righteous man is the man who lives for future generations. In other words, he's not only sowing the seed and sowing it indiscriminately, and sowing it into someone else's life, but he's so building into their lives to guarantee that they will also sow. Because when this is properly done, it guarantees future generations. Guarantees. Jesus built, trained, and equipped 12. One of them was a devil. You are in this room this morning as a believer because of those 11. His strategy hasn't changed. Has not changed at all. You know, we get busy mapping strategy, and usually the institutional church runs by the wrong one. You say, man, that sounds like he's in a quarrel. I am, but it's a lover's quarrel. (laughs) I love the church. It's the only hope for the world. But we've got to employ Jesus' strategy and not our own. Because the harvest is automatic. What can we say in lessons for our lives? And I didn't put these on the screen. One. There can be no harvest without seed sowing. There can be no harvest without seed sowing. Once seeds are sown, there will be a harvest. You can just mark it down. There will be a harvest. The harvest is automatic, the Lord says. I implore you, challenge you, provoke you. (laughs) Get out and start sowing seeds. Just indiscriminately fling them because the harvest is automatic. You don't have to know. See, you don't have to give that shotgun presentation and then go notch the belt, John. You know what we like to do? I'll let a guy to the Lord today. (laughs) 
So, okay, what'd you do with him after that? Huh? <laughs> Number two, you reap exactly what you sow. Exactly what you sow. You know, there are going to be different levels of punishment in hell, just as there are going to be different levels of reward in heaven. The Bible's very clear on that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 said, We must all appear at the judgment seat, the Bama seat. Doesn't that sound like a summons? We must all appear. That's King James again, Raj. You know. <laughs> Raj and I are King, King James babies. We, we learned that. But we must all appear before the Bama seat, the judgment seat of Christ. That each one can receive his reward for that which he's done in his body, whether it be good or bad. Now, we look at that word bad and we go, oh, oh, this, we got a problem. You know, he's going to be there at the judgment seat and he's going to have a, you know, a digital projector and he's a big screen and he's going to project up all my sin. No. No. The word bad is not a moral word. It's a Greek word, phallus, P-H-A-U-L-O-S. It's phallus. It is a word of value. So what he's going to judge at the judgment seat of Christ is not your sins. Those were already judged in Jesus. He died for all of your sins or he died for none of them. So that's already done. No, what he's going to evaluate is your work. And it says that over and over again. Your work, your Christian service, whether it was good by his definition or whether it was worthless by his definition. Wow. So it's possible for some to go into heaven soup smelling like they've been through a fire sale. Because what is worthless, he's going to burn it up instantly. That's the Word of God. The Word of God. So you reap exactly what you sow. Three, you reap exponentially more than you sow. Exponentially more than you sow. A seed is a powerful thing. You know, you can drop a seed in the crack of a rock, and if it sprouts in due season, it'll split that rock. Seed's a powerful thing. Very powerful. Looks very frail to appearance. You can crush it. Looks very frail to appearance, but a powerful thing. Four, you reap far later than you sow. Went in great detail on that. Five, you must seek to guarantee future generations of sowers, of reproducers. You must seek to guarantee future generations of sowers, reproducers. And last, certainly not least, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ for the pardon of your sin, you should settle that matter before you leave today. Settle that matter. Tomorrow's not promised. The next 10 minutes are not promised. Praise God if he should come in the next 10 minutes. That would be wonderful. <laughs> so it's not promised. Come to Christ today. Just 
He's just waiting for you to nod in his direction and say, yes, Lord. The answer is yes. Now, what's the question? <laughs> Surrender to him today. Let's stand. <laughs>